My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. And with A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. This is one of the most frustrating Gospels to encounter. It's so frustrating to picture these ten people having leprosy. Ten people have this life-threatening, debilitating, highly contagious illness. These ten have been separated from family and from friends, practically just left to die. And with little hope left, hearing that, that Jesus is passing through town, think about what it was they were asking for. Unlike so many other healing scenes that we find in the Gospels, they don't ask for healing. They're not looking for restoration. They're not even looking for a miracle, but pity. How others had viewed them, how they viewed themselves, everything about their lives, all that had been redefined by this tragic reality that they had leprosy. And so they asked for pity. Yet Jesus goes beyond commiserating. He doesn't simply feel bad for their situation and try to offer some words of comfort. He gives them direction. Go, show yourselves to the priests. Which as they're doing that, they're they're cleansed, they're cured, they're restored, they're healed. And that's when we get that punchline. Only one of the ten returns to offer thanks. You would think that having experienced such a a bonafide miracle that there wouldn't be anything else of more importance for them to do other than to offer thanksgiving. It's so frustrating. What a bunch of thoughtless ingrates. Where else could they have to go? What else would they have to do after this life-threatening, debilitating, highly contagious illness has been cured? Did they think that they just naturally got better? That it was just a coincidence that they happened to see Jesus right before they were healed. Yeah, it must have been a coincidence. Come to think of it, I was actually starting to feel a little bit better the last few days. Were they just so embittered from the experience? Ruminating over the fact that they were sick in the first place. That they didn't deserve to be sick. 
So they think at the bare minimum, what they had coming to them was to be rid of this illness. And anyway, that's not going to make up for all the suffering, all the time lost, all the friendships and relationships that had been strained during this, all the people who had let them down and not been there for them. Maybe they were just delirious with excitement. I mean, it was like the equivalent of winning the medical Super Bowl, so they're going to Disneyland, or the Samaritan equivalent of 2,000 years ago. Maybe they were still gripped with fear and anxiety. They weren't convinced the cure was going to stick. They had been so hopeless for so long, so, yeah, things look good for now, but they'll want to get their hopes up too much, lest they set themselves up for disappointment again. It's so frustrating. I think the reason this gospel is so frustrating is because of that old adage, what frustrates you about someone else is that it reflects things about yourself that you don't like. All those scenarios, all those emotions and responses that come to mind as possibilities for why Thanksgiving was far from their minds when it should have been first and foremost is because I know I've been there. (laughs) I've been that leper. I've been one of those nine. I didn't intend to be a thoughtless ingrate. (laughs) I might not have even thought that I was. I might have just been so fixated on myself at that moment that I dismissed the more important thing, namely that Jesus was near and is listening and responding. Yeah, I can think of times where I prayed for healings. I can remember when there were storms where the winds and the tides were getting worse by the minute and I thought I was going to capsize and drown. There were times when I felt guilt and shame over things that I had done and didn't feel that I could even be in God's presence. All of which where I was healed and I was saved and I was forgiven. And once those moments were passed, I moved on. I forgot, or I discounted the miracle, or I came up with an excuse or an explanation. And the deeper healing and the greater salvation and the transformative reconciliation was squandered because I was one of the nine. And maybe I'm not alone in that. (laughs) And if you're like me, the good news is that As frustrating as this gospel can be, as frustrated as we can be at the responses in those areas where it's uncomfortably relatable, the good news is that Jesus isn't trying to shame us or embarrass us, and he's not frustrated with us. Because the point of any miracle isn't about the dramatic response in that particular moment to a particular need but it's ultimately meant to help us to grow, to fall deeper in love and in confidence with him, with our loving father who created us, with his son Jesus who saved us, and with his Holy Spirit who continues to work miracles in and with and through us. And that's why that first reading is such a great pairing with this gospel. We heard from the Old Testament book of Kings, which comes at a period of time where the Jews had seen their their kingdom was divided and was beginning to be destroyed. 
and being pillaged by all these pagan forces simply because the Jews had been unfaithful. They had not honored the covenant with the Lord. They had not offered proper worship to the Lord. So things were falling apart. So here's this non-Jewish military leader from Syria named Naaman. And he's been highly successful in battle. He's defeated one of the tribes of Israel. And he's not only just taken a lot of wealth and riches from them, but he's also gotten this young girl from Israel as a servant of his. He's pretty much kidnapped her. As successful as Naaman was, he's helpless when he contracts this life-threatening, debilitating, highly contagious disease of leprosy. And the young Jewish girl tells Naaman about this prophet in Israel named Elisha, who she knows can cure leprosy. So he's so desperate. He's willing to listen to this slave who he's captured and put into his service. He's willing to return to enemy territory and to go to someone that he's never known of or even even heard of for help. And when he gets there with all of his entourage, all of his wealth, Elisha doesn't even come out to see him. He just sends word to him, go to the Jordan River, wash seven times, and you'll be clean. Naaman's not pleased. <laughs> he's expecting something a little bit more profound, some dramatic ritual, and he's about to storm off in a huff. And that's when the young girl says to him, you came all this way, and you were prepared to do something big and bold and dramatic. Why wouldn't you just listen to what the prophet has said? In other words, why not be obedient to the Lord God and follow what he has instructed you to do through this prophet? Which, when he finally does, he's completely cured. And that's where the reading picks up today. Naaman is so stunned by this healing that he goes back to Elisha and he wants to pay him, he wants to honor him, he wants to give him a gift, he wants to do something. And Elisha keeps refusing, saying, you can't pay me. You can't honor me. You can't thank me. It wasn't anything I've done. It's what the Lord God has done. And that's when it all clicks for Naaman. He realizes what's happened, and he asks for two mule loads of earth, which sounds like a strange request. But the reason why is that in the ancient world, they believe that pagan gods can only be worshipped on the soil that was native to their people. So by dredging up this earth, and taking it home with him, he's basically saying that the Lord God was the only one worthy of belief, the only one worthy of worship. So he's bringing a little bit of Israel back home with him. This man who never knew God, that he had previously had such little use or respect for God's people, has his entire worldview completely changed. He knows he's going to be surrounded by those who don't believe, and he wants to be clear that the Lord God and him alone is worthy of worship, is worthy of thanksgiving. And he intends to constantly give praise for what the Lord God has done for him. Both readings underline why thanksgiving is so essential to our prayer. And as a priest, one of my promises at ordination was that I would make a daily commitment to prayer. And because we make those promises and because we have so much organized daily prayer, whether it's this mass or praying with the psalms throughout the day in this thing called the liturgy of the hours, which they're all great and they're all essential. There are times that I didn't realize I was going through the motions. 
where I was maybe just fulfilling an obligation and maybe I was distracted. I get distracted on a good day having ADD. So yeah, there were times and periods where I didn't realize I was distracted, things were stale, maybe things had gotten routine in my prayer. I didn't intend to take God for granted. And I didn't set out to be inattentive or to go through the motions, but I did. And it led to times of being discouraged and moments of doubt and despair and temptation. It led to a truly dark time where I took a leave of absence from active ministry and came very close to leaving the priesthood. What was transformative in my prayer was when Thanksgiving became a primary essential part of it. So now as part of my my daily holy hour, the first thing I have to do is come up with three things that I'm thankful for, that I want to express gratitude to God for. And honestly, there's some days I don't want to. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm anxious, I'm hurried. I have a whole list of things that I want to talk about with Jesus. And he's like, okay, we can talk about all of that. It's, it's fine. I'm, I'm happy to listen to you complain, whatever. You can vent and everything, but give me those first three things first, and then we can go and do whatever you want to talk about. And sometimes it takes 50 of the 60 minutes, which is really frustrating. Sometimes I'm stuck just thinking, what am I thankful for today? I don't want to say coffee again. As great as coffee is, I am thankful for it for every day. Sometimes I'm going through a whole list of things that I know I've gone over before, and all those are true, but what's something different, something else? And the point is, it's not like I'm trying to impress God and being creative or original, or that I have to pump up God's ego or something, like he needs a thank you note from me. I know he's not withholding his grace and his blessings because I forgot something. This experience helps me to recognize just how blessed, just how many prayers have been answered, just how many miracles have occurred, just how many times things looked dire and maybe didn't resolve in the dramatic way that I wanted and prayed for, but did resolve, dare I say, better than I anticipated or hoped for. And all that validates the truth that prayer isn't about changing God's mind or heart, but about changing ours. Because whatever it is that I'm bringing into my prayer, whether it's I'm wrestling with something or I'm distracted over something, whenever I leave that holy hour, it's with whether with a new insight or a clear answer to those things or whether things are just kind of where they were when I first walked in. It's that practice of thanksgiving that my mind and my heart are refreshed and renewed in remembering all that God has done and all that God is doing. When I keep coming back to how my life has been changed by him. And that, my friends, is worship. That's what Naaman shows us. That's what the one leper demonstrates. And when we get to that same posture, it's then that we understand that the real miracle isn't just when the leprosy is cured, but when our lives are focused on giving glory to God at the feet of Jesus and hearing him reminding us again and again how truly it is that our faith has saved us.